Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Jennifer Garvey-Berger. Jennifer is the CEO of Cultivating Leadership, where she serves senior leaders from Silicon Valley to the wilds of New Zealand, from the financial sector in China to the climate change ecosystem in Europe. In her practice and her three acclaimed books, Changing on the Job, Simple Habits for Complex Times, co-authored with Keith Johnston, and Unlocking Leadership Mind Traps, Jennifer has developed a series of tools and approaches that help leaders around the globe to grow their inner agility and thrive in uncertain and complex circumstances. It's a pleasure to welcome Jennifer to the deep dive. How are you today? I am great. Thank you so much for having me. You know, I'm, I'm, I always start off with saying that I'm excited about having this, this conversation and I think regular listeners are always going to be like, oh, this dude is excited about every conversation, but you know, it's true, right? Like, you know, I really do look forward to speaking to my guests because, you know, not just because I booked them, right? But because they have something to say or I wouldn't have have asked them to appear on the show, right? And, you know, you're someone who is particularly prolific as, as a writer and a thinker in the space. So this is one that has been circled on my calendar for a while. So I want to like really jump right into it. And, you know, we discussed this sort of three, well, I'll call loosely trilogies, right? Like you have this, this series of books that look at complexity and leadership in slightly different ways, different takes, capturing different parts of that leadership journey, right? So that's a perfect place to start to defining really complexity and, and the way you frame it in your work. Yeah. And as you see, I keep writing to try and get a handle on it, right? See if I can take my own thinking and practice farther by the act of writing. So I think for me, the idea of complexity is about what is so intertwined, interwoven, fast moving, and uncertain that we have just no idea what's going to happen next. And it doesn't change in any kind of linear way, right? It has these nonlinear ways of moving around. And it turns out we are not automatically good at that, right? We are, we have evolved to be really good at having, living into a future that was a lot like our past. And particularly leaders right now who are trying to lead people into this really uncertain place. The question is, how do they need to change what some of their impulses or reflexes might be in order to handle a different world than we've kind of evolved into. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad the leadership piece came up. This is like a table setting part of the conversation, right? Because I want to also give you an opportunity to define leadership. Because what I found anyway is that a lot of these words are used so interchangeably. Everybody has their own definition for certain terms that we can be talking about the same type of phenomenon, but in completely different ways. So we've kind of started to put a little pin in complexity and I want to spend a little bit of time defining like leadership as well. Yeah. So for, for me, basically leadership is about helping 
a series of diverse humans find their way forward together. And leadership is, for me to think somebody's really engaging in the thing I call leadership, it's about helping people bring their best, right? It's not about coercing or convincing or getting people to kind of slog through something. It's about connecting to the wholeness of who we are and what we can bring and connecting us to one another so that the thing you've got is the biggest version of the people around you. Not every day, right? It's not, it's not a superhuman task I'm talking about. This is a profoundly human task I'm talking about. And uh, bringing that humanity into, into every engagement to help people be bigger today than they were yesterday, to help people be bigger together than they are apart. And, you know, I, I also want to ask, do you think there is a distinction between leadership and what I'll call like power and authority? Oh, for sure. In the sense that those are systems out there that come with their own sort of way of thinking, but often, and this is just my observation, you might see things differently, power and authority are often sometimes confused with leadership. Oh, for sure. So I want to give us a chance to kind of walk through that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Power and authority are often gifted by something outside the context of the human who, who inhabits that, right? Like that's like a suit that you put on. It doesn't need to particularly engage with who the human is in the suit. Leadership is about the human in the suit, right? And so you can put the power suit on and be just an extraordinarily bad leader. In fact, it very often happens. There's some evidence that suggests that putting the power suit on actually makes you a worse leader. I distinguish really significantly leadership from you know these kinds of structural power places, also because leadership is the force anybody can exercise, right? It doesn't need to be exercised in the context of power or authority. It often brings power with it, but you can actually exercise leadership without power and then the power kind of trails as opposed to putting on the power suit and then exercising leadership. And, you know, let's think about that concept a little bit, because I think for a lot of people listening, it might sound odd to think that one can lead without having either power or authority, or at least not having those things within the traditional way in which we we think about them. So I, I want to give us a, a chance to kind of maybe walk through that a little bit, because I, th I think that that concept could be could be a challenging one to grasp, particularly if we're used to, you know, hierarchical types of, of organizations, which imbue leadership with title, right? Yeah. A lot of what humans have done in the world, I think, is to try to order and control a thing that's really hard to order and control. And one of the ways we've done that is through hierarchies and through hierarchies that have, as you say, titles or somebody's anointed into them, right? Like they are bestowed these hierarchies in some way. And this for me is a arises out of the human quest to make more predictable a world that's unpredictable. So can I figure out who the leader is? Oh, you look for that person with that title, with that business card. That's, that's what I'm going to do. But actually complexity says most of that human effort to do that kind of crap, right? Like it's kind of, it, it's kind of our, our wish for a world that we're more understandable than the world actually is. And it's kind of like a shortcut to believing that we can understand a thing. Actually, the way systems change often doesn't have very much to do with a business card, 
right? Like you can have a CEO who's in charge and that CEO wants to create some kind of a culture change or whatever. CEO can create the culture change, you know? And then you have somebody who starts a group in a business to talk about this thing or that thing, about how this thing or that thing is unfair or should be different, mobilizes, using leadership, mobilizes a bunch of people in the secretarial and janitorial staff. And suddenly there's a lot of power in a place that there aren't a lot of business cards with power. And that's for me, the exercise of leadership. And one of the things about systems is they can tip into new states. Complex systems tip into new states through interventions at just about any level of a system. And so while while the CEO might have a few more, I mean, obviously CEOs have more resources to kind of put behind what she wants. Actually, the resource of connection, the resource of emotion, the resource of storytelling, these are super powerful resources that can't be bought or sold. And, you know, it's interesting because it begs the question, like, do we need to rethink what we mean by by leadership? And you know, I'm someone that I would consider, I'm using language that I don't really give a shit about, but it will help paint a picture as we kind of tell a story, you know, classically trained, right? Like I went through school and had jobs in corporate and kind of did all that stuff, right? And, you know, if I, I think back to sitting in a business school environment, for example, you know, it was, you know, Harvard Business School case after Harvard Business School case. I did not go to Harvard, but, you know, that was sort of the language and the way in which you are taught. And there's a lot of, you know, military thinking that's in that. And, you know, we use these examples and metaphors all the time. You know, we're storming a beach, we're taking a hill, you know, all, all this, all this kind of stuff. And it does very much speak to a certain type of person and, and structure. And, and as you mentioned, you put on like this suit, right? So there's, you know, iconography and, and symbols that go along with what we think of as leadership, right? Some of it physical, others of it, you know, more ethereal. So how do we kind of navigate through all of those those systems when they've been quite well-established, right? Like they didn't come up with just with you and I, right? I mean, the, the, the question right now, like your, your question, does leadership need to evolve beyond these things that we've had? And does it need, oh, for the love of God, to evolve beyond warlike metaphors, right? Yes, look where they've gotten us, right? Like this is not a time where we say, oh, there's such a surplus of awesome leadership that the world is in such beautiful shape right now, right? The thing that we notice is not that. The thing that we notice is, when you get too much of any one thing anywhere, it goes bad, right? Like like a monoculture of any kind is weak in a complex world. And so you get too much of like this monoculture of white male leadership, kind of this testosterone-fueled leadership. That's probably a, a really decent form of leadership some of the time. But when it takes over everything, then you know that we're in a place where diversity is mandatory for our collective thriving. It's just not optional. But yet we're resistant to these things, right? Like we are living in, in a world that is that is highly resistant to this. I remember, um, I might be getting the exact meeting wrong, but it was this past, 
maybe it was in the summer of 2021. It, it could have been maybe even early fall, but you know, Biden had gone to one of these like G20 type of things, G19. I don't remember which which teen we're at now, right? It's constantly shifting. You know, it could be the G18 by by the time we get off this conversation, who knows, right? <laughs> but he was at one of these types of meetings. And this is not a remark particularly to Biden. I could be I could have inserted any president for the past what however many years. And they were sitting around, you know, when they take those, you know, the casual photo at those type of things where people are like caught holding, you know, shaking hands and kind of talking in little huddles. You know, it's like pretend you're actually like speaking to one another as human beings, right? So it's one of those types of pictures. People are broken off in little pots. And it really stuck with me because I was like, are these people capable of like leading us? Like this is the least inspiring photo I've ever seen, you know, and to paint up another more recent picture I've seen at the time that we're having this conversation in the prior week, there was like the Munich security conference, or I think I have that right. And again, one of these big rooms, marble, big ass fucking oak oak table, you know, (laughs) like 30 feet on each side, not a woman in sight, you know, like literally not one woman in sight. You know, no one of that of color at all. So no black person, no Asian person, um, South Asian that I could see in the picture, right? So of course, there's a little bit of perspective. There might have been one dot somewhere, but there wasn't. You know, so I say all that to say after that little bit of a soliloquy is how do we break through that monoculture to to find a more effective way forward? And and I'll add to that a little bit. How do we make sure that we're getting different value systems in place rather than different people, right? Because one of my favorite examples is, you know, Margaret Thatcher was the first prime minister of the UK. And she's a horrible person, right? So it's not like I want to see just more women or or black people if they suck, right? Like the current head of Department of Defense, I think, in the United States is a black guy, right? Like I don't need to see a black face in service of empire is is my point, right? So long lead up but how do we like how do we punch through some of that when it's still very much locked into a particular way of being yeah i wish i had the answer to that question right you and i would be well, living gonna, in a different world out, we're going to figure it out together right now in this conversation right i can say i can say complexity complexity ideas give us some some like direction right so first of all complexity ideas would tell us that that systems change can happen from anywhere. And so there are a lot of people who don't try to change anything because they feel powerless. You know, I, I grew up in the US, I moved from the US in the um, in 2006. And a piece of it was I felt powerless, right? It felt like the system is so big, like what, what the hell, right? How could I ever affect change here? Cause I'm so small and change really needs to happen. And I left. And I left and I learned a lot about complexity and all these sorts of things. I moved to like from one of the, these huge superpowers to New Zealand, right? This was like at a scale I understood. And then I watched how New Zealand does it, which is super interesting. New Zealand is a tiny country, right? Like, you know, four and a half million people. So tiny country, but it has a seat on the world stage, right? So, so somehow this tiny country that doesn't represent that many people can actually amplify its voice next to the big guys because they figure out like what seats at which table are we allowed at 
And how do we then amplify our voice there? And I learned a lot from that. I, I learned a lot from just watching how something really small can influence something really big. And so the question is, where do we have our spheres of influence? And then how do we how do we go towards them? So this is the first thing. The second thing is in complexity, connections and connectivity is more important than individual excellence. So I could be the smartest or the most interesting or the most beautiful or whatever. I could be any of these things. I'm not any of these things, but I could be like, let's just say I was one of these things. And if I am without connections in a world of complexity, I'm nothing, I'm just nothing. But if I am average, but have the right values for people to get behind, right? I, I somehow can communicate through my stories and my presence, something that other people see themselves in. Then suddenly I can have a lot more influence than just being by myself and being awesome. So this is the second thing I think that it's important for us to know about. And the third thing I'm, I'm kind of coming to believe now, uh, which is that a sense of hopefulness is required for us to make change in the world. Because if we are hopeless or we feel defeated, we will not actually act. So all of this needs to be animated by a sense that change is possible. And I feel like the um, that there are forces in the world that kind of try to pull us forward into some different future. And there are forces in the world, we call them like progressive. And there are forces in the world that kind of try to retain something from the past. We call that conservative, right? And it's actually just much easier to rally people around the past because we know what it is. And it's much harder to rally people around the future because the future is like, what is that? Right. And so you break off into 10 million splinter groups when you start to rally around the future. And so so then the question is, how do you use hope and connection and our humanity to rally people around a future that we could create together? And this is a I think somehow this goes in the direction of your question. No, absolutely. And there's and there's a lot of really good things in there, because just as as I'm thinking through like how to make things happen, right? I've been really struck by like cynicism, right? You you kind of talked about, you know, we need a, a sense of hope. And I think hope has been one of those things, maybe it's like a post-Obama thing that's been sort of like, not degraded, but I, I think people are kind of like, eh, that hope thing, that didn't really work out. So they're kind of like salty about it. Um, and so now when we talk about these sort of bigger ideas around hope and other things, right? Like having a vision for the future that looks different from this one, I feel like there's skepticism out there, right? Like we sort of entrenched now skepticism. And so, you know, the question is again, and I know we're not going to have like perfect answers to this, right? But we're trying to like work through the the how do we get to those, to that thing, right? Like how do we push back against that cynicism, right? That ease of, of saying, well, you know, it's always been like this. Human beings suck. This is just the latest extension of human beings sucking. So pff, I make the best of the sucking, right? <laughs> like, I'm going to buy a bigger car. Yeah. You know, the, 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 that becomes sort of the, the South, right? But I, I think an, another thing you really observe very interestingly is that there's folks out there who don't want to go forward. Right. Like I think all too often we kind of use the, you know, 
arc of justice bends, you know, however the saying goes, right? With this sort of idea that it just keeps getting better because it just does, which which I find actually to be a very corrosive idea, right? Like it, it doesn't always get better, right? Like does for some, doesn't for others, you know? So how do we deal with those two realities, right? The idea that we need hope to move forward, but that hope can't just be, let's call it the hope of autopilot, right? Like how do we balance the, those two realities to a certain extent? Yeah, the, this question about cynicism is huge, right? Because cynicism feels kind of righteous and comfortable. Like it's a it's a nice way to feel like everything's going to hell, but you're kind of above it in some way, you know, or you have a kind of I told you so or a distance from it. And so there, there's a way of the disagreeable or unpleasant emotions. It's kind of a pleasant, unpleasant emotion, if you know what I mean. And it's poison. Right. It helps us. It helps us feel sophisticated as we are withdrawing from the future. And so, one of the core approaches I think is a key to all good leadership is to really listen to and understand into pain. Cynicism is almost always pain. Right. Like, like I feel betrayed by something. I had hope, and it was dashed, and now I my heart was broken. And I need to shudder my heart. And the way I know how to shudder my heart is through cynicism, through inaction, through through a, a desire for, um, you know, a, a more conservative desire for a past that must have been better than this, right? Probably wasn't, but but like like it must have been, right? And so I think, can we listen to that as pain? And can we hear it and empathize with it as a kind of unattractive cry? of my life doesn't feel as good as I wish it did. And then once we listen to it, I think there's an opening. I think once we understand, oh, that hurts, I understand. I see that. I see that. There's nothing more connecting than being seen by another human being, right? And there's nothing more inspiring of change and opening a a heart that's shuttered than to be seen. So cynicism, I I, I agree with you. I think it's I think it's poisonous, and at the same time, it's a self-inflicted poison that is hurting hurting us all. And then the question is, how do we hear it, see it, and then together begin to try experiment with doing something else, right? Without promising. A lot of this question about the new leadership also has to do with the new followership. And I don't know how to write about that. I haven't written about this yet because I just don't quite know how to get my head around it. But a lot of it is like, stop wanting a miracle, right? Stop wanting a superhero. Stop wanting a happy ending where everything goes well and everything gets tied up in a bow. Like, it's not going to happen. And if you feel betrayed every time that doesn't happen, like this is life and you're going to spend the rest of it feeling betrayed or people are going to lie to you and you're going to like that better. These aren't great choices. So how do we change what we're looking for as a is a collective of humans and say what we're looking for is somebody human, trustworthy, but broken, because this is the best a human can be. And then use that humanity, collective humanity, to to search together and to understand in ourselves that our own cynicism is a sign of our disappointment. And it's the place we put our powerlessness. But actually we're so much more powerful than that. I mean, I think this is a, a beautiful sentiment and a great train. You know, I, I didn't have this in my notes, by the way. So we're kind of 
a, a little bit off script, quote unquote, but I think it's it's all blending together because we're thinking about the followers, right? Those who are are part of of movements, you know. And I'm and I'm a lot of my examples, and I always caution listeners that you know I'm living in Brooklyn, right? So a lot of my examples are going to kind of come from an American way of thinking, right? Because what I see every day, despite having a very international background and perspective, I'm still in Brooklyn, right? So there'll be critique of those that are politically progressive, right? Using that language. Progressive doesn't have to be in politics, but I'll use it for this example to say that, you know, it's a basic circular firing squad. And like the minute someone disappoints us, we kind of get angry and all the rest of it. And so I want to just use that as a way to kind of talk about those followers, right? Those of us who are looking for a better way that can't get caught up in the traps of perfection. Is there a way for us collectively as humans to get comfortable with one grace and forgiveness? So kind of use those as that kind of two connected points, though they are different. And also getting comfortable with not knowing, you know, in the sense that I find a lot of leadership, they just, they have to, they feel like they have to give you an answer. Like they just can't say, I don't know, right? Like, I don't know, <laughs> right? And they, they, the, the compulsion to have to give me an answer often to me seems like it ends up giving me like dumb answers or things that don't make sense. And then when it turns out not to have been right, that's then used to say, see, those motherfuckers were lying to begin with, <laughs> right? So I want to give you an opportunity to kind of walk through a, a little bit of that jumble that I just that I just gave you. Yeah, I love these words that you're using, grace and jumble? forgiveness. <laughs> Jumble's good too, actually. Okay. I, I, like, I like the jumble. Grace and forgiveness. Can we actually value our humanity? Not as a thing we wish we were more machine-like and we could get rid of, not as a thing that we wish we could undo, but can we actually see into, this? my new book is about this, can we actually see into our humanity and see greatness in it? Not perfection. Right? That these things are different. Greatness and per- we we don't love the perfect, right? We we love the human. We love we love the beautiful. We love nature because not because it's perfect, because it's imperfect, right? It's grand imperfections. So this question for me about can we get more into grace for ourselves, forgiveness for ourselves, and grace for one another? I think this is a huge question. And there are tons of spiritual practices that lead us in this direction, right? Too often kind of eating each other along the way. And then this sitting with not knowing, I think is like the developmental requirement of our time, right? To say, and I kind of love that we have all had this like crash course of the last two years, where we haven't known what the hell was going to happen next. Like we just all spent all our time not knowing what was going to happen next. And we it happened to all of us at the same time. It didn't happen over there, over there, over there. Like the whole world went through a crash course in not knowing, went through a crash course in having to live every day, even though we didn't know what we were going to be able to do, whether we were going to get sick, whether we were going to die, right? So we lived with our mortality. We lived with the profundity of our interconnectivity right? Like where we can keep each other well or make each other sick. And we lived with borders are going to open and close. I'm going to be able to go or not go. I'm going to be able to see people or not see people. I have no idea what what I'm going to do. And we all sat with that. We all sat with that together. And the question for this moment is, 
can we grow collectively from that experience, which was a curriculum, right? Like it was like school and not knowing. That's what we just had. Can we grow from that? Can we breathe it in and sit with the discomfort? Or are we like trying to scrabble our way back to some pretend past and put that in front of us as a future? I think this is a question we're in right now, but it's it's like such an important moment for this question of not knowing. And, you know, it's, it's interesting that you bring up COVID and the pandemic as an opportunity to kind of talk about the not knowing. You know, one of the things that I, that, you know, we're talking about forgiveness and grace and how this applies to how we look at the world. And I wonder if there's room for grief in that conversation, because again, these are my perspectives, you know, the person leading the conversation, it feels like there is no grief at what we have experienced over the past two years, right? So I'm not being predictive that we can't get to a different place, but the conversations that I'm seeing from where I'm sitting around something like COVID, which I'm going to really use as a, let's use it in the way you intended as a metaphor for getting comfortable with not knowing, is that people are not comfortable with not knowing, right? So they almost rather like erase what just happened so we won't talk about it right? Like, like we'll talk around it. But when I say talk about it, like we won't talk about these things in any sort of like, did this change us or what happened? It's more like, yeah, you know, people died, but whatever. <laughs> right. And, and I'm not saying everybody, but I'm just saying mass, you know, like, again, at the time we're recording this, because these are going to be released a little later. And I just saw Boris Johnson on TV talking about like, hey, would you know, we're just going to, it's time for us to move on, right? Like that sort of, and some of that is cultural, right? This, the British so-called stiff upper lip, right? That bullshit, right? And I have a lot of family in the UK, so I feel free like constantly like hitting the Brits, right? <laughs> so it's like, hey, cousins, <laughs> you know, um, you know, this sort of stiff upper lip, carry on, you know, all that kind of shit, right? And it feels like they're, again, taking this idea from the past, right? The Luftwaffe are bombing the UK, Battle of Britain. So, hey, stiff upper lip, carry on. But now it's COVID, right? And the complexity of the reality of this versus the reality of Nazi Germany, as fucking terrible as that is, are two completely different things. But we're using the same mentality, right? And the British are doing it. We're doing it here. You know, others are doing it. Like, we're just saying, fuck it. <laughs> yeah, people right? are tired of being, they're tired of, yeah. they're tired of it. You know. Yeah, we're tired of it, so let's just pretend it didn't happen. Yeah, so, my son's in. My son goes to university. He goes to graduate school in the UK. We just moved from the UK last year, and he goes to graduate school there. And he's like, "Oh, mom, I just wanted to let you know, COVID's over." It's like, "Great, that's awesome. It's over." And you know, you see Boris on TV, and he's like, "It's over. Take off your masks." Like, like the virus is gonna get this memo, right? Oh, 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 oh. Sorry over now, you know, the queen has COVID right, right now, yeah. which seems like a, I don't know, it's a something, right? It's a something yeah. in the, in the British world. So grief, yeah, uh, we don't like it. It doesn't feel good. It's one of those emotions that we mask with other things like cynicism, or we try to medicate with consumerism or hating somebody who's different from me in some way, which is also an effective way to mask my own pain. And so I think unless we grieve together, unless we can, unless we grieve for 
not just for those that we've lost and not just for those whose lives are now wrapped with pain because of loss of life, loss of health, loss of income, loss of ideals, like whatever it was, there's been a lot to lose here. But if we can look at that, and again, it's like this this connecting, listening move and say, I feel your pain in me. We are, in fact, evolved to feel each other's pain in ourselves. Like we have a whole huge part of our brain that's devoted to this. Now, this makes us like in some ways, very porous, right? Very connected to one another. And in order to stem that porousness, we put cynicism or consumerism or any of these racism, right? Like all of these isms are designed for me to close off the openings in myself to another human. If we just let that in, if we put down those isms as much as we can and have our life be a practice of putting them down, then we let each other in. And as we let each other in, we do, I've got to believe that evolution brought us to be so porous to one another on purpose. Not that evolution has a particular purpose bent, but what it does is it solves for life, right? This is what evolution does. It solves for life. And I've got to believe that evolution has solved for life in a way that means that our porousness has some kind of life-giving quality and our damping down that porousness then would have some kind of life-stealing quality. So yeah, how do, how do we open up? And, you know, I, I love that porous analogy, right? Because it, one is very poetic. I love this. I love when we're going like down these poetic roads together. But in addition to that, I, I you know, it, it makes me think about time and complexity, right? Like, so we're kind of full circling a little bit here where you, you mentioned early in the conversation that, you know, complex states, they, they flow from one state to another, right? They're not always one thing, right? And when you were, were sharing your thoughts and, and using this porousness, this porous connection, it made me think about time is like that, right? Like we are in this present moment that we're sharing together, separated by geography, of course, about 4,000 miles, give or take. And we've talked about the past. We've talked about the future as, as things that came before us, possibilities that lay in some future, you know, but our time is something that we live in in different places, even in similar states. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, people will say like, oh, the world is, climate change is a good example of this, right? Like climate change is something that's happening for most of us that live in a Western industrial space happening in some future, right? So it's something that we can plan against, right? Potentially. We're not, but we could conceivably plan against it. But for many people in the world, it's happening now, right? It's affecting them in their present. So this porousness that you talked about seems to exist in different ways, in different times, Right. So how do we grapple with just generally time and complexity and how we view the world? Right. Again, big chunk. I'm not expecting like a as the answer or four. Right. But just, you know, we'll, we'll, we're going to kind of stumble through this one together, I guess. So I'm totally captivated by the idea of time. Just so you know, I love and I have like almost endless wacky theories about it. But the the question of 
how do we make sense of the different ways we're experiencing time and the different kind of metaphors we have for time and what time does for us, I think is such a useful conversation. And I, like, I don't mean to sound Pollyanna-ish, but this is the kind of conversation we should be having. Conversations about grief, conversations about grace, conversations about time. Like the these are so much more helpful conversations for us to make meaning together than conversations about money or conversations about who has the biggest whatever. But, you know, what do you do for a living? Like whatever. These are not the most beautiful conversations. And so this question of time we access it. We know that we access it in these really different ways from different motions. Sometimes time is fast. Sometimes it's slow, right? Sometimes the future is ahead. Sometimes it's now. Sometimes we're living in the past. Like this is very interesting, our relationship to what time is. And now that we have, you know, devices that keep us on exactly the same second as each other around the world, we think that there's something automated about time. But time as a mechanical thing, it's it's a different entity, right? Time as an experienced thing is a much more generative, much more human thing to talk about. We we have time as an entity because trains needed to be on schedules and we needed to get from, you know, get to the station at a particular hour so we could get on the train and go somewhere else. I, I get it. I like trains. But the question of how are we living in our time how are we connecting to the time of others? I think this is an awesome inquiry. Yeah, you know, it, it's something that I I ponder all all the time, and you know, I want to—no pun intended—I just said the word, but um, I want to use that a little bit to connect to these these traps that you that you highlight in your books, and I highlighted one of them in particular. I wrote down all five, but I'm going to tackle the the trap by simple stories element of it because I found that to be such an eloquent way of putting a phrase or word to, I guess, something that I've felt, but didn't really know how to capture, right? And time kind of fits into that, right? Because when people, when you live in simple stories and that simple story connects to this past that feels really good, it's easy to want to go back there, you know? And, And the example I use is, you know, America, right? America exceptionalism is one of those, like, to me, simple stories that we tell ourselves, right? You know, the founding fathers were divine. The constitution is this document written in stone, can't ever change it. You know, these are like real ideas that crazy people have, right? And so I think about those ideas and I say to myself, well, you know, I don't really know if I want to go back to like any of those days, right? Like, what would that have meant for me? That at best, if I go back to the 50s or 60s, what am I, a black, right? Like, you know, I'm like, you know, we talked about trains. I'm like a Pullman porter. Like, fuck wants to do that bullshit, right? So the past, that past kind of sucks, but it's connected to that simple story. Because if you don't embrace that past, that makes you like unpatriotic or whatever, even though I don't give a shit about that too much. I don't, patriotism is stupid, but you know, um, simple stories, right? How do we, avoid being trapped by simple stories, whether it's American exceptionalism or something else as it relates to time. I think we are so often trapped by stories of the past, whether it's our past where we, you know, remember how awesome high school was. I didn't have that past. So I don't, I'm not worried about being trapped by how awesome high school was myself personally, but I see people 
in this trap. I, I see people in the in the trap of, you know, this profession was in its golden day X years ago, you know, when to be a lawyer was a great thing or when to be a farmer was a great thing or whatever, or this country, as you say. And whenever we have a story that we could just tell like that, we forget that it's a parable, right? All of our stories, all of the stories that we can tell about the past are metaphors, right? And they, they tend to tell us something about the present. If you want to read about the past, you get 10,000 books and it's confusing and it's boring and it's fascinating and they all disagree with each other and you left at the end and you're like, I know less about what happened then than I did. And that's the whole point. That's actually what learning looks like is I know less. It means I'm less sure about a thing than I am now, which is the same as saying I'm more curious about a thing than I am right now. So when we believe our simple stories, whether it's a, a simple story about, you know, a good girl always does this, or, you know, my people were like that, almost, it's hard for me to imagine a time when that hasn't just radically cut out massive pieces of truth, right? So that we could have a parable. So we could have a metaphor for something. And when we forget it's a metaphor, then we're trapped by it. As soon as we realize it's a metaphor, then we can play with it, right? The past was like an apple. Like, let's play with it. (laughs) You know, let's, we're, we're not confused that in the past we were an apple, right? But but we are confused that in the past we were in some golden age. There's no such golden, there, there's never, humans Humans have never lived in a golden age, right? Has Absolutely. Not happen, and it won't happen. It won't, because we're humans. This Part of our nature is that we are good and bad. This is a fundamental part of our nature. You look at research that says, are we the good guys or the bad guys? Are there great things? You read humankind, that's awesome. You read like, we're animals, it sucks, like, Yes, it's all true. It's all true about us. Everything's true. Yeah. <laughs> we are very much like apples, right? <laughs> or perhaps a mango, a juicier, a juicier fruit that I love more than I love apples, even though I do Absolutely. Love you know, from New York, how can one not like apples? I'm in the literally the big the apple state. <laughs> and you know, I, I want to get into a couple of these traps before we get into the final two segments of the show. But I, I think you hit on something that's really interesting because another thing that I see being parsed a lot are these ideas of identity, right? And what identity is that we're cool with talking about? What identities are we not, you know, cool talking about? You know, the the concept of identity politics has been weaponized so so often because it 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 speaks to a couple of things that I think you highlight in in your traps, right? Which is I'll just name two. It could probably extend to others, but being trapped by agreement and then being trapped by control, right? And I feel like a lot of these folks, or I'm curious what you think, like they want to, like we need to have like a national identity, right? Like no one thinks of that as identity politics, right? Um, What they mean are other things, right? And I think about a lot of, you're in France right now and, you know, France is dealing with this a lot. Like it's so funny. There's an article in the, in the summer, there are a lot of these articles, you know, France is threatened by wokeism that's being imported from the United States, right? And then just last week, again, at the time that we're recording this, there's an article that some lunatic that's running on the right there used this metaphor about like the great replacement, right? 
and and they said that this was like a new bridge in French politics. Right? So I'm going to use France as a, another kind of example. But yet there was no mention that maybe these racist ideas are coming from America, right? So it's like only like the wokeism comes from America. This other stuff comes from the ether, apparently. It comes from nowhere, right? So it seems like a lot of places are trying to figure out like what do we agree on? Right. Like there has to be like a French identity that subsumes everything else. There's an American identity and so on and so forth. Right. The nation state idea as captured by all these different places. Right. So dealing with complexity, dealing with leadership, you need agreement. Right. To move something forward. But we can see where we can be trapped by agreement. Right. So there's these paradoxes going on there. How do we kind of like, again, pull some of that apart? And I'm not looking for like the apple. Right. <laughs> you know, but just we're going to do this together and then we're going to get to the final two segments of the show. So, again, for me, it's about looking into our neurobiology in a way. Agreement feels awesome. Right. It feels delightful. When we agree with somebody else, we actually both get a hit of dopamine. So if two strangers sit down, they stumble on something they agree on. They get a hit of dopamine. Similarly, if I'm afraid that you're going to exclude me in some way some social way, right? Like I'm not afraid you're going to hit me or hurt me or steal from me, but I'm afraid you're going to not want to play with me or not want to invite me to your house for dinner, right? That shows up in my brain the way physical pain shows up in my brain. So we like agreement. We're afraid of exclusion. This in a small society is probably helpful, right? You can imagine this means we act on each other's behalf, right? We do things that help weave our community together. And I try to be good for my community so as not to be ostracized because to be ostracized causes me physical pain. And, you know, a couple thousand years ago, I would also die, right? So yeah, neither have you on the rack. <laughs> that's exactly right. Not, none of this is particularly good. <laughs> now, in this world of complexity, where we are big and interconnected and we need to figure out how to get along together, agreement's a trap right? It's, it's a trap in these two different ways. And you highlighted both of them. One of the ways is that we band up together and we create these circles of ever smaller, but more intense interest. And then because of social media, we amplify that like inside our little echo chamber. And then another thing that's really well studied is we sort of pit ourselves against people who are different in this way. And we decide what the right difference is to pit ourselves about. So we do it on the left and the right, right? Like we're the, the woke thing is doing the same thing, right? Like ejecting the people they think don't agree with us enough. And like all of it is expelling complexity from the midst. All of it is saying, if you are different from me on this thing that I think matters most, you can't be in my sandbox. And I'm going to demonize you in some way. Uh, I have to say, I, complexity would tell us, ecosystems would tell us, nature would tell us, diversity is the answer to this. We have to get good at diversity, diversity of thought, diversity of experience, diversity of time, diversity of location, diversity of power, diversity of language ways of thinking. We have to get good at using our different perspectives to build something bigger instead of trying to slaughter those different perspectives or capture them into our side. Because we need a whole lot of very innovative ideas about how our future can 
unfold if we are going to be anywhere other than just fighting each other. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I know I promised the fun to say with, but I do want to ask one other question on, on that piece. I do agree with that. I think diversity of thought for me is kind of a tricky one, right? And the reason why I say this is because I find like that language, and I know you didn't mean it this way. So this is not like, again, an accusatory thing. This is more of, I've seen that those words used a lot by like conservative media to justify saying things that are like crazy things to say. And, and then they'll say, well, you know, why can't we just talk about it, right? Like, why can't I just say this thing? Like, why are we so sensitive? And so the, the question that I want to ask is, when do we reach a point where we're no longer having like the marketplace of ideas and just having like crazy talk? And what I mean by crazy talk is, this is an example that I use all the time, right? And it's an example from a while ago. After I think Steve Bannon had left like the Trump administration, he was like, talking at like the economist they had, like some big thing right <laughs> like their idea festival i can't remember exactly what it was called but it was like a big signature event and they had steve bannon on there and i was like well you know steve bannon is kind of a lunatic right it's <laughs> so odd that they would choose to have him on there and of course everybody's like, diversity of thought why can't we hear from him and hear what he has to say i'm like okay well there's lots of ideas that we wouldn't have on the stage at The Economist or any number of things, right? Like if I was out here saying that, you know what would be really great if we went back to a time where women couldn't vote, no one would invite me to talk and, and exchange with me as to have that idea as a serious idea, right? So how do we parse the serious from the non-serious and the serious from like just lunatics, right? Because I, I, I mean, I'm telling my hand here, but anybody who listens to the show knows how I feel about these things. These people are lunatics, right? Like, I don't want to hear from them. This is an example I gave you with the show, right? Like, I don't want to fucking have Steve Bannon on here to talk. Fuck you, right? Like, you have nothing to say that I want to hear, right? So I'm not going to talk to this guy. I don't care about his diversity of thoughts. His thoughts are nuts. So enough of me shitting on Steve Bannon. But the point of him, he's just a metaphor for any number of other, you know, lunatics, right? But you get what I'm trying to say. And then yeah. that's going to be the final thing. And then I'm going to get you out of here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, it, I think it's a great question. So there are like people who don't have a grasp on reality, right? And then there are people who have a grasp on reality and then bend it to their will. This is where Steve Bannon actually is, right? Like he's not a lunatic. He's He's got a grasp of reality. He, he just knows how to play it and play the audience. I don't think he believes the stuff he says. I think he knows what things to say in what moment to win the prize that he's after, right? This is like clever, but evil. And so I think that we could reasonably come up with some values-based ways to allow for a pretty wide span of diversity. Because I think one of the things that's happening in the U.S. right now is that we demonize each other so much that we can't talk to each other at all. And I started to get super curious about what was going on for people who vote, voted for Trump. And people won back. I actually can't imagine a logic to that. Right. And I lived in London as we were pulling out of Europe. And it took me three and a half years to finally feel in my body why that would be anybody's idea of a good idea, like why anybody would have said that. So I think we have to listen to each other across difference. I don't think we have to listen to each other across hate. Right. I, I, I think we need to 
um, understand that hate is actually an expression of my pain. We need to find ways to discharge that pain, but I don't think we need to put that on a panel, right? I, I think we can we can reasonably get a very wide diversity of opinion and keep hate out and understand that hate is a like misapplied discharge of my own profound unhappiness and therefore doesn't deserve and is kind of creepy to give that a, a kind of public airing. This is not a helpful thing. Absolutely. No, that, I think that, so. Maybe that would help. No, it it does indeed help, right? And 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 those distinctions are are super super important. And I and I love that we got a chance to to go there, right? A little off my notes, but it was it was absolutely awesome. So as promised, you know, because I got to get you into your afternoon now. Off the dome. These are rapid fire questions. I only have three of them. So first thing off the dome is what we're gonna go with. All right. So my first one is: What is the strangest gift you've ever received? strangest gift I've ever received. Of course, as soon as you say this to me, my mind goes completely blank. I think if I ever received a gift, surely yeah. I... <laughs> I would hope so. Jeez, I, like, I think probably, probably. I'm not even a big gift person, but I know I've received a gift or two in my life, right? Yeah. What's the strangest <laughs> one I've ever gotten? It would... I am. I am guessing for me, it would be some kind of obscure kitchen equipment because I love to bake. So I have gotten all kinds of funky, strange things that when I opened up the present, I was like, I literally don't know even what room of the house to store this thing in. Um, <laughs> but we'll call it baking equipment. Okay, there you go. Baking equipment. Now, we all kind of look back and, you know, when we were kids, we had this idea of like, oh, if I could be anything, I would be this, you know, kind of looking back on whenever that moment was. You know, what was the thing you thought you most wanted to do? Your dream job. When I was little, I would tell you. And once I dressed up for Halloween as figure skating, flute playing cowgirl. This, I thought, was my future. A figure skating, flute playing cowgirl. I, I had the hat. I had the skates. I had the flute. Like, I went door to door on Halloween dressed as my dream job. This literally sounds like the beginning of a great Pixar like, movie. <laughs> You know, if anybody from riding her horse with her figure skates on, like it can't be good. It can't go well. Can't be good for the horse. It can't be right? good for the horse. <laughs> now, my my last off the dome is you've obviously worked with a lot of different organizations, a lot of different people, not asking for like, you know, proprietary information. But what's one of the oddest coaching requests that you've received. It doesn't have to be attached to a person. So I'm not asking for you to out anybody's little coaching foibles. But what was something odd that you were like, hmm, that's a strange thing to kind of want to work on? <laughs> I had a leader once who wanted to work on, he knew there were all kinds of things about him that were difficult. And he wanted to work on getting other people to feel good about those things about him that were difficult. That's what he wanted to work on. <laughs> I, <laughs> that's awesome, right? Is that's super awesome? It's awesome, I, and I love the way that's all put together. Like I'm a terrible human. I know he didn't say this, but I'm just saying that I could picture in my head like someone being like, "Hey, you know, I'm just a terrible guy, but can you get people to kind of dig my terribleness?" Like that'd be awesome. It was awesome. <laughs> it was awesome. And when I was like, "I don't do that," and he was like, "You're all about leadership and complexity. This is a leadership and complexity challenge." So yeah, what the hell? 
He's looking at you like you're part of the problem. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So the, the final segment of the show is a drop. And this is an opportunity for us to share something with our listeners. It can be anything at all. I'm going to go first. It's kind of set us up and then you'll be up. And my drop is from a tribe called Quest. And I'm going to name their first three albums. They have this, this trilogy of amazing records. They're all of their records are good to some extent, but I think most people would agree that their first three, again, trilogies. I started with a trilogy with your books and I'm ending on a trilogy, which is a tribe called Quest. So People's Instinctive Travels has a longer title, but I'm just giving the shorthand. The Low End Theory, which is their second record. And then the third one, Midnight Marauders. I think anybody who wants to really enjoy such a significant moment in time in hip hop history, that's a great place to start with the Tribe Called Quest, their first three albums. And that's my drop. And you're up. That's awesome. I'm excited about that. Uh, over the course of our conversations, a book keeps coming into my mind. And this book is called Einstein's Dreams. I don't know if you if you've read this book, but if you haven't read this book, you should go out and buy this book today. It's written by a man whose name has just gone out of my mind, but he's a professor of English at MIT and uh, like like a writer and a physicist. And he wrote this book as a series of dreams that Einstein was having as he was developing his theory of relativity. And every night Einstein dreams that time is a different thing. Time is like a river. Time goes faster when you go up. And each vignette has what life feels like with this category of time. And it's mind bending and heart opening. And uh, this is, I think you would love it. No, that's awesome. Mind bending and heart opening. That's like shit. That should be like, what more do you need other than that? That is is an awesome drop. Einstein's dreams. And and all of these go in the show notes. I looked them up. I have links and all that good stuff. So listeners will be able to find this very, very easily. Jennifer, I want to thank you so much for for being on the show with me. This was a great conversation. I I couldn't think of a better way for me to start my morning here in New York and I hope you you continue to on to have a great afternoon in, in France. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. It was fun. You can listen to the Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.